So we've been in a um, series of, of uh, talks about margin. Margin is the idea, just like in a book, it's, um, it's the space around. And a lot of us, um, in different parts of our life, maybe we've got some margin in this part, but not as much margin in that other part. And uh, so we've been talking about margin. Margin is, in a lot of ways, like when you, when you go to the, the DMV and you're getting your driver's license, and they've got those little kind of stump, stump the, the, the chump sort of questions about, you know, if it's a, a hot day and the roads are slick and it's 80 miles an hour and how far should your car be from the one in front of it and, and so forth. And you never remember them, but you make a wild guess and you kind of pass the test anyway, right? Margin is that idea. You, you need space between um, the different parts of your life so that if something goes wrong, there's not a 17-car pileup. So, so we'll be talking about margin. And, and uh, last week, um, uh, we talked about, well, uh, the, I guess I, to back up just a second, the, the thing about margin is it's so practical that if you came to church today saying, I want to hear something really esoteric and um, uh, something with no practical application, then you're going to be disappointed again. Because, again, we're going to talk about something that's, that's, that's very practical. And, um, and uh, if, if you were looking for some deep theology, the theology is that your Heavenly Father loves you and He doesn't want you to be miserable. So He gives us, he gives us real teaching in the, in the Bible that helps us to have better lives. And uh, we're going to see that today. Last week we talked about um, time, and the reason I did that is because time is not my friend. Um, time is one of the areas I lack so much margin, and so uh, it's an area I'm committed to work uh, more on developing margin in. Uh, but today we're going to talk about money, and, and like I said, um, this may also be my problem. It's just that I haven't discovered it yet because I haven't taken the time to to figure out whether money's my problem. But I know it is a problem for a lot of people. Um, when I was at my uh, last church, uh, we had a we had a different sorts of ministries. We we help people with food ministries a lot, like this one. And we also help people who called up and needed some some uh, temporary assistance with with money. Uh, you know, subject to our own limitations on what we could do. Uh, if somebody would call up and say, "I'm I'm having some trouble," you know, with my utility bill or or my rent. And and Jewel Lake Parish does something very similar as well. We have a, a benevolent mission uh, ministry as well. And so I'm, I'm kind of, you know, the phone rang and I'm talking to this uh, person and uh, trying to understand what is the nature of her problem. And she says she needs help paying for her storage unit. And I'm thinking, storage unit, that's not one we usually get. But, you know, but, but people's stories are different. And sometimes, you know, maybe, maybe she's, she's out of, you know, maybe she's between housing or something and she needs a place to put her stuff. But no, no, this is actually a storage unit she's had for quite a while. Uh, she wants uh, to 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 pay for it, but she's had it for for uh, over a year. And I'm thinking, well, that's that's odd. But then, in the course of the conversation, it turns out this is not her first storage unit. This is her second storage unit, and she wants help to pay for that. She's got enough money to pay for the first one, but not enough to pay for the second storage unit. And and I told her, um, I said, well, I think I'm beginning to understand your problem. Have you considered? Have you considered? Moving the really good stuff that you can't part with from the second storage unit to the first and shifting it all around and then selling everything that's in the second storage unit and then you won't have the cost of that plus you'll have whatever money you made selling the stuff in the second storage unit. And she didn't like my advice and so um, I will just tell you up front this is not um, a, a message on financial advice. Um, I'm not, I'm not a financial counselor so if you don't like my advice, well too bad. Um, 
but I won't give you any. Um, I'll try to stick to the Bible. But, but I know that there are people who have problems with margin in the area of money. Uh, this this w- woman had had a problem. She had a very real problem, and I'm sure it was causing her a lot of anxiety. And I just couldn't see how our church, given our own limited uh, circumstances, would be able to help her in the way that I thought she needed help. So, so I'm a mean guy. But um, but uh, uh, people have got problems with their money, um, and um, the funny thing is, there's not uh, there's not much reason for that. In so many ways, our money goes further than it ever has. I was reading a, a article the other day. Um, an economist, somebody gave an economist a 1975 Sears catalog. I don't know, it had been you know up in an attic or something, and um, they gave it to him. And so he went to the Sears.com website, and he looked up the same items to see whether they were more or less expensive now. And he just went through the the the, the first items on the the he picked the items on the Sears.com webpage, and then he figured out what they cost. Um, not in absolute dollars, but in um, in hourly wage hours. So he figured out what is the what is the average uh, non-supervisory wage in America. And he said, so if you're that person who makes that non-supervisory average pay, in 1975 a television set, a 19-inch TV set, would cost you 60 hours of work, and today it costs you 6.6 hours of work. So uh, a TV set is 11% of what it cost in 1975 and it's probably a much better TV set it's you know digital and you don't have to take the tubes down to the store and and you know check them out the way we used to have to do <laughs> back in the day so um so it's a better product and it's much cheaper but but it's not just TV sets you know electronics that kind of, you understand that right but refrigerators a refrigerator in 1975 cost 66 hours today it costs 20 hours that's 30% of um of what it cost then a washer dryer uh, uh, 67 hours in 1975, 30 hours today, so less than half. Um, but it's not just the big ticket items, it's small ticket items, right? A pair of sneakers, they used to take two hours to pay for, now they take one. A pair of jeans, uh, if you're a man, they're even cheaper, so he used the women's jeans. In 1975, women's jeans cost uh, an hour, uh, 1.4 hours, today they cost uh, 1.0 hours, uh, exactly an hour, uh, an hour's average wage. So everything is cheaper. He just went through and found all these things that are cheaper. Everything's cheaper today. Our money goes much further. And yet during that same period of time, since 1975, the average level of debt in this country is up four and a half times. Okay? You have four and a half times as much debt, if you're average, as you would have if you'd been average in 1975. And mortgage debt is even worse. Mortgage debt's up five and a half percent, uh, five and a half times, not percent, five and a half times. So, um, so people have uh, money that goes further than ever before, and yet they have more debt than ever before. Something is wrong with this picture. Um, uh, I, I have wondered myself. Um, there's a uh, the average the average household has a credit card debt, just credit card debt, of fifteen point eight thousand dollars. Okay, fifteen thousand eight hundred dollars in credit card debt, and Americans spent eighteen billion dollars last year. In late fees, not in interest, just late fees, $18 billion. And so then we turn on the TV set and we see our governments having fiscal cliffs and, and uh, uh, debt ceiling negotiations. And I honestly wonder, you know, which is the chicken and which is the egg? Is it that we're learning bad habits from our government 
or that we send people just like ourselves to Washington where they behave just like we do, except they have lots of zeros after their numbers. So I, I honestly don't know. But, you know, we can kind of smile and say, well, it's, uh, we get the government we deserve or whatever. But, but it's not without a cost. Um, financial stress is one of the top things people consistently list in, in their lists of, of stresses. Um, even children. You wouldn't think children, you know, they can't hardly add. Children consistently list um, money problems as in the top ten items that children are concerned about. So, you know, mom and dad are short on my allowance this week because they can't manage their finances or something. I don't know what it is. But kids are stressed about finances, and adults much more so. Um, I, I love this one stat. It said that couples that argue about money weekly, uh, uh, couples that argue about money at least weekly, are 30% more likely to be divorced than couples that, that argue about money a few times a month. And, and I love that, the way that they put that, 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 you know, not, not couples that have it all squared away and, and never argue about money, but, but even just that extra level of stress of arguing about money weekly is enough to increase the odds of a family being, uh, broken up by a divorce. So, so it has a real impact. Um, and so, so am I just gonna list all these stats and say, well, that's, you know, that kind of, it's tough, you know, bummer. It is, it is tough, but, there is an answer, and the answer is is in the Bible, and that's that's why um, churches have people like me to tell you this because it's right there. The answer is that that God does not want you to suffer in these ways. So so Jesus gives an answer to the question of why do we have these money problems, where where our money goes further than ever, and yet we have less of it than ever. So what is the answer? Well, uh, before before I tell you, I mean, I've already told you if you're paying attention, but but the answer Jesus gives here is one of the most fascinating ones that I, I found in Scripture because you know sometimes in a church uh, there are people there who really aren't you know they're they're there you know I was one for years um, my wife would take me to church and I didn't really believe it all right I, I didn't have it all worked out you know me and God and Jesus and I just didn't know exactly how I felt about that. And what I love about the passage today is Jesus is talking to people like that. And specifically, he says, religious people would be a lot better off if they would be like you. Jesus actually holds up non-religious people and says, and says, religious people could learn a lot from you. And what he says is that they could learn how to deal with money by looking at non-religious people. So we're going to look at that today. So Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says there was a rich man who had a manager. In those days, if you were rich, you had a manager. Um, uh, the word, the word, our word economy actually comes from the word for manager here. Um, it's, it's, uh, the, the, ma- the, the, the person who rules the house. That's what economy actually means. The rule, the rule of the house. And the reason you had somebody who did that for you is because it's a tedious job. How many of you do a good job of budgeting and everything, right? Probably, you know, if you're like me, you don't have margin in your time, so you don't. But on top of that, in those days, they also had um, no calculators. They had no spreadsheets. They had Roman numerals. So if you don't like doing your budget now, try doing it in Roman numerals, right? So, of course, of course, you would hire somebody. If you're wealthy enough, you'd hire somebody and let them deal with all the, the money problems, right? So, so this guy's got a manager for his money. But charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summons him and says to him, What's this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. 
Back when I worked in industry, we used to talk sometimes about the way that, did you hear about Fred? He got escorted out today. Has anybody else heard that phrase? I don't know how common it was. But the, the companies I worked for, we talked about be, people being escorted out. And what that means is your manager would not just tell you, hey, guess what, you know, you know, the future's not good for you. Uh, but they would, they would summon a, a guard who would come up and stand there next to your desk while you cleaned it out to make sure you didn't sabotage or do whatever. So it was always like an extra level of insult. You know, it's bad enough to get laid off. But when they would escort you out, that was the worst thing, right? And the, the guy, the master in our story, he should have done that. Okay, he should have escorted his his financial manager out. Okay, he should have had the guard take his badge at the door because he didn't. And instead, this guy has this little conversation in his head. Well, what am I going to do now? The manager's taking a position away from my master's taking a position away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. And then he hits on a scheme, right? How can I solve my problem? Okay, well, the way I can solve my problem is by summoning all of of my master's debtor. So he gets all, all of the people in his Rolodex and he has them all come in and he gives them discounts on whatever they owe. Right? So one guy has, uh, whatever, a hundred, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He says, make it 50. Another guy comes along and says, I owe you a hundred containers of wheat. And he says, he says, take your bill and make it 80. And Jesus calls him a dishonest manager. Now, uh, commentators have actually wondered, um, uh, how dishonest he was. There's, there's parts of the Bible where we just don't understand the culture well enough to, to know how dishonest this was. Clearly it's dishonest, but the question is exactly where the dishonesty is located. One of the things about, uh, the Bible, if you read the, 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 the whole Bible, and there's actually a question in your, in your bulletin, you can look into this, um, is there are very strict rules about interest. That, that they had very strong rules about, uh, uh, under what circumstances and, and how much interest you could charge. And so what, what some people have suggested is what this guy was doing, alluding to a cultural practice where you didn't charge interest, you just marked up the bill. So they really did owe you 80, 80 containers of grain, but you wrote down 100 and they went along with it because no one would give them, you know, the thing they needed, uh, uh, otherwise. So it was a way of evading the rules about interest. So clearly there's some dishonesty going on, but exactly where it is, was it when they first wrote the bill? Um, or right now that he's dis- he's discounting it. So nobody knows exactly where, but there's dishonesty going on. And um, and uh, Jesus says, uh, Jesus continues, he says, his master commended the dishonest manager. Notice Jesus does not commend the dishonest manager. But he says, his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. And then Jesus gives us kind of our lesson. He says, the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. This children of language, it's a little obscure to us uh, in the in Middle Eastern cultures to be a son of something or a child of something means that that is your kind of your your north star, your reference point. You try to be like that. So you talk about um, uh, what is it? The um, uh, two of two of Jesus's disciples are called the sons of thunder. Okay, because because people said that they're kind of a lot like their dad, who is very thundering and. And so they're a lot like him. So to be a child of something is to be like that. So so uh, to be a child of light is a way of saying you try to behave in a godly manner. They, they tried to avoid using the word God a lot, so they would say light. They would use these euphemisms instead of actually saying God. So so instead of saying a son of God, they said a child of light. So he says child of light is people who try to behave in a godly manner, people who are religious, 
people who, who are trying to, to do the right thing. He says, he says, children of this age, people who just kind of fit in, okay, people who act in every way exactly like the rest of this culture, okay, the religious people could sure learn a lot from them. What could they learn? He says, he says, they're more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, I tell you children of light, I tell you religious people, I'm telling you, behave like them and specifically make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into their eternal homes. And then Jesus kind of sums it up. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much, right? If somebody um, borrowed your, your barbecue um, and they never return it, then you're probably not going to lend them your car, right? just makes sense. If they're not faithful in small things, you're not going to lend them big things. So he says, whoever's faithful in a very little is faithful also in much. Whoever's dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If you've not been faithful with dishonest wealth, who's going to trust you with really valuable stuff like peace and security and contentment and joy? Right? He's saying, God has the ability to bless you, but if he, if he can't trust you with simple money, why would he, why would he give you good stuff instead? So he says, if you've not been faithful to what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? And then he sums it up. You've heard this before. People have used it in all kinds of ways. No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And that is the principle. The principle that we could learn, we as religious people could learn from non-religious people, is to use our money as a tool instead of letting our money use us. Jesus says, Jesus says you can't serve two masters. And God's will for us is that our master is God, that we are servants of the living God and not of money because the living God is a better master. And he says, if instead you are a servant of your money, you're going to have a really hard time. You're going to be miserable because money is a bad master. So, what do we do with this? How do we know what to do with this? Well, the, the, there's all kinds of advice I can give you about finances, and I told you that I don't have a great track record with getting people to take my financial advice. Um, but I will give you two biblical principles you can apply instead. The first is, ask yourself, is money my servant? Or am I my money's servant? So just ask yourself that question. And if you don't know, my guess is you're probably your money's servant. Okay? If you don't know, Jesus calls money dishonest wealth. Um, not that there's anything wrong with wealth, but, but it just lies to us, right? We, we, how many times have we been fooled by our money? Where we thought it was doing one thing and it turned out it was doing something entirely different. So Jesus says, Jesus says, um, you cannot serve God and wealth. So make sure wealth is not the thing you're serving. If you're not sure, find out. Andy Stanley says, spy on your money. Okay? Just, just kind of stalk it for a week. Just keep tabs on everything your money's doing and ask yourself, you know, is this money working for me? Or maybe you need to have a conversation with your money like this guy did in the story, right? Where you need to say, give an accounting for yourself because I'm going to fire you and I'm going to be smart enough to escort you out. Um, this this past year, Americans spent eleven billion dollars on coffee. Okay, eleven billion with a B. They spent sixty six billion dollars on soft drinks. Okay, 
They spent $2 billion on Halloween candy. And in a couple of weeks, we'll spend $2 billion on Valentine's Day flowers. Last year, Americans spent $2.3 billion getting tattoos applied and $66 million getting them taken off. (laughs) So spy on your money. Find out, is your money working for you? Keep notes. Write it down. You don't need a manager because you're not using Roman numerals. Figure out what your money's doing. And second of all, once you've got that answer, then there's a very simple principle you can apply. If you are spending more money than you are bringing in, then your money's not working for you. Money's working, but it's working for Citibank or for you know your credit union or whoever. The money's working, but it's not working for you. If you're spending more money than you're taking in, then your money is not working for you. Back when I worked in um, uh, in industry, the same place that used to escort you out, uh, one of my coworkers was named Mark, and he was almost finished with getting his uh, MBA from Warden, which is one of the top MBA schools. He was doing night school and so forth. So he was going to become a, a corporate executive tycoon type. He probably brought us the financial crisis a couple of years ago. But he's so smart, he's probably not in jail, even so. Um, so, so I was having a conversation with, with Mark, and he said, he said, debt isn't a problem. Debt is just a tool. Debt gives you leverage. You know, it's a, it's a, like a crowbar or a hammer, right? You know, it gives you leverage. So, so you're using other people's money to accomplish your goals, right? That the debt is, is a lever. And, and I, I like that image, and it's true. Debt can be a lever. But like I told the children, how many levers do you need in your house? Um, uh, and, and you know, have you ever, have you ever, uh, hit your, thumb with a hammer? Have you ever, have you ever actually whacked your head with a, with a crowbar? Um, you know, uh, levers are not uniformly good. So ask yourself, do I really need this lever? What am I using it for? Is it just so I can have more shiny stuff in my house? Because a lot of the time, that's the truth. So, so ask yourself, why do I have this lever? Do I really need this lever? Do I need this many levers? Do I need so many crowbars? They're going to fall down and hurt me when they go boom. So ask yourself about your debt. Um, I had a conversation a couple of months ago with a group of pastors, and um, uh, the conversation was about uh, the Dave Ramsey financial program. I am an unqualified uh, recommender of that. If you have ever asked yourself, do I need to take a, a Dave Ramsey class or a Crown Financial class or, or something like that, if you've asked yourself the question, do I need that, the answer is yes. You totally do. I can give you that without any any hesitation at all. Um, Dave Ramsey and Crown Financial, in particular, they are they are solid, biblically based. They're not going to try and tell you that you know if you give money to God, God's going to pay you back like some kind of slot machine. They are simply helping liberate people from debt. I can recommend them un, uh, um, unreservedly. But I was in this conversation with a group of pastors, and uh, in the course of the conversation. I, I, there was some, there was some uh, disdain for Dave Ramsey, and he's kind of a, a colorful radio personality, so I can understand that. But the more the conversation went on, I figured out it's because that particular pastor at their church, they had got into debt in order to, to build something, and he felt judged whenever Dave Ramsey went off on an anti-debt kick. So, so um, uh, uh, maybe, maybe sometimes it's the right thing to do. I, I don't know that church's circumstances. Maybe for them... Getting into debt for that project was the right thing to do. But I will tell you, I had a conversation with another pastor a couple of years ago um, 
who was telling me about a, a member of her church who was an active duty captain in the United States Marines, and uh, he and his family had somehow uh, found themselves with about $40,000 of credit card debt, and he lost his security clearance because he was too good of a candidate for blackmail. And so that ended his career. His, his Marine career was over because he couldn't keep his finances, and in particular, he couldn't keep his debt straight. So of the two pastors, the one with the church in debt and the one with the, uh, the um, member of the congregation who had ruined his career, my sympathy goes with the one whose who's, uh, who's, um, uh, congregant had lost his, his uh, job. Um, our culture tells us that the person who dies with the most toys wins. Right? They tell us that the more shiny stuff we have, the better off we are. And Jesus tells us a different way. He tells us that, that our money should be our servant and not us its servant. Our wealth, our, our, our security, our status, our identity should not be tied up in the things that, that money uh, permits us to have as a, a, a cruel and sometimes heartless uh, master. But instead, it should be our tool used for our purposes. And we, in turn, should be servants of the living God. No one can serve two masters. Your Holy Father's will is that money be your servant and not the other way around. Thanks be to God. Amen.